You're listening to the Sermon Podcast from Real Life, reaching the world for Jesus one person at a time. Morning, gang. You're like, that does not look like Aaron. You can barely even see my head, I know. That's because Aaron will watch. so cool. That's because Aaron will watch this, and then he will punch me later. Uh, Hey, my name is Thad, and uh, just to make sure everybody knows after I said a smart aleck remark, uh, Aaron and I have known each other for a really long time, Um, and he will punch me later. Uh, I am the pastor over at the Pullman campus, and uh, since uh, moving here a year and a half-ish ago and being a part of Real Life on the Palouse and a part of the Pullman team over there, this is officially my first Sunday at Moscow. So I decided to give it a try. Come check it out. Uh, Aaron and Kelly over in Pullman uh, this weekend. And then I get the honor of uh, uh, sharing a message this morning with Tom. My name is Tom Fitzgerald. I'm one of the worship leaders over in Pullman. Uh, get to get the privilege of leading the teams over there and also getting to lead um, all of you in worship. And I'll tell you what, it is an awesome thing to get to do. So thank you all for worshiping and making my job really fun and easy. Hey, Thad, welcome to Real Life. If you could just grab a connection card. I don't know about you, but when Rod tells you to do something, I'm like, put me in, coach. I'm going to do it. I'll fill out four connection cards. Nice, nice. Yeah, I hope I get the free gift being a first-time visitor. Um, I need a new whatever it is. Um, Hey, we are in a worship series, and uh, we are talking a lot about worship. This morning, we're going to focus in particular on how worship affects or can affect our community, not just a community here as a church, but beyond the walls of the church. How can worship affect our community, all right? Now, Speaking of community, things are about to change drastically in this community and over in uh, Pullman. The whole Palouse is about to see the uh, mass exodus of students heading to the west side, right? Like, it's that time of year where it's going to be easy to find a place to park anywhere on the Palouse, right? Thanks, God. (laughs) There's going to be the the trail of taillights heading out of town, and so... um, with that is uh, Thanksgiving right around the corner, and there's going to be a lot of people getting together and sharing food and sharing meals and sharing stories. And I don't know if your family is like ours, but probably a lot of you have that person in your family that is the storyteller. Some of them are sort of the self-appointed storyteller, right? And some of them are really good at telling the same stories over and over and over and over. In our family, my father-in-law, my wife's dad, is an awesome storyteller. He uh, was in the military for a career and then spent forever in the oil field. And so he's an awesome storyteller. Uh, About 3% of his stories are appropriate for Thanksgiving dinner. (laughs) So you know, over the years, you're quick to be ready to muffle the kids. A lot of his stories revolve around cars, and we've heard them over and over and over again. The first or second time, you're like, this is a cool story. The third time, yeah. Fifth time, you start to sort of gloss over, and you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You just want to tell them the end, you know, like so that we can get on to the next thing. Um, We can kind of have that same approach sometimes as Christians when we come to God's word. There are stories throughout the Bible that are anchor stories 
that we're really familiar with because we've heard them so many times. And when someone starts to teach about one of those passages or read one of those passages, we can start to sort of gloss over. And we even like fast forward in our mind to the end of the story because we've heard it so many times. We're like, okay, get to the end like, like you would do with my father-in-law. And the story that we're gonna get into this morning right out of the gate is one of those stories that a lot of people are very familiar with. It's the story of the exodus of God's people from Egypt. Now, a lot of people know a lot of the details from that story. You know the characters in the story, you know Pharaoh and Moses and Aaron and the Israelites, and you know that there was plagues and there was this big back and forth between Moses and Pharaoh and all these things happening. But here's what I wonder. I wonder if I was to give you a pop quiz this morning, if you would pass. In fact, let's throw a little test anxiety on them, shall we? All right, pop quiz. Grab a pen. Don't worry, you can grade your own paper. Okay? Uh, grab a pen, get ready to jot it down in your notes or on your Palm Pilot. Hold on, hold on. <laughs> what, Palm Pilot? Yeah. What is a Palm Pilot? I've got one. Right here. No, I'm serious. What is a Palm Pilot? When you write on your hand, that's like when I was in high school, everybody had a Palm Pilot. And so I got one. I still have it. What year is it? (laughs) Hey, I was cool then and I'm still cool now. If you don't say so yourself. (laughs) If I don't say so myself. Now that you have your pens ready for the pop quiz, here's here's the question. Don't say anything out loud. Just write your answer down. I want to know, do you know the precise, specific, exact reason why God wanted Pharaoh to let his people go? Why did God want Pharaoh to let his people go? Write fast. All right. All right, what do you got? Why did God want Pharaoh to let his people go? Anybody? So they could worship him. Yes, that's exactly right. So that takes a little bit of like the pizzazz out of the sermon when everybody just gets the answer, right? That's okay. Thanks for knowing the word of God. That's a big deal. So no, you're exactly right. God wanted, God wanted to, uh, to call his people out of Egypt so that they could worship him. And he says it over and over and over and over and over again in this Exodus story. And we're going to take a look at some of those scriptures. They're in your notes. There's like seven of them, seven different uh, passages of scripture. We're only going to read a couple few uh, in the interest of time. But take a look at this whole story, starting in Exodus 7 and going all the way through 10, I think, 10, 12. And just look at the number of times that God calls his people to worship. Let's start in uh, Exodus 7, 16. It's in your notes and on the screen. Then say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has sent me to say to you, let my people go so that they may worship me in the wilderness. But until now, you have not listened. And so we begin the theme of worship. We begin the theme of worship. So keep going. This is what the Lord says. By this, you will know that I am the Lord. With the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile and it will be changed into blood. The fish in the Nile will die, and the river will stink. The Egyptians will not be able to drink its water. These are all, you know, if if you're not going to let my people go, here's what's going to happen. Seven times God says, let my people go so that they may worship me. Uh, 
in seven out of the 10 plagues come with this command. So let's look at another one. Then the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh and say to him, this is what the Lord says, let my people go so that they may worship me. If you refuse to let them go, I will send a plague of frogs on your whole country. And let's just do one more for fun while we're here. Then the Lord said to Moses, get up early in the morning and confront Pharaoh as he goes to the river and say to him, this is what the Lord says, let my people go so that they may worship me. This is a huge deal to God. It's critically important to him. God wants his people worshiping him. Uh, so why? Why is, it, why is it such a big deal? Obviously, there, there's, the, there's the idea around idolatry. God doesn't want us worshiping anyone but him. But what is it about worship, and why call an entire nation to do it? Well, here's the observation on this. It is on this page. When God's people are free to worship him, it galvanizes their identity. It marks them out as the chosen ones, the one on whom God has set his favor, the, one that, the ones that God has redeemed and saved. When we all worship God, it galvanizes our identity. It fixes our eyes on God himself and allows us to conform ourselves to his image, right? Because you become like what you behold. You act like what you worship. Uh, you could say that who and what you worship defines who and what you are. Let me tell you a story. So um, I was born in a little tiny town called Alfalfa, Oregon. Anyone know it? No one? So that's never a surprise ever <laughs> because I'm the youngest of nine kids. <clears throat> my, uh, so my, you know, 11 people in my family, big family. When we moved to Alfalfa, the population doubled, you know, <laughs> And, uh, or at least the counted population, because here's the deal with this town. It was kind of the opposite of the witness protection program. <laughs> it's where uh, criminals would kind of go and hide out in the desert. And uh, so my dad moved us there, and we started a church. And let me tell you what, if you want an interesting uh, church service, that's one. He t I'll never forget, he was taking requests for worship. My dad was a worship leader, too. He says, does anybody, you know, just a worship night, who has a request for worship? Kid you not, someone in the congregation yells out, California girls. So my dad does it. I wish they all could be. It was, I'm like, wow, this is church, folks. This is, uh, this is how it went. But uh, so in this little teeny town in the middle of the desert, and I mean middle of the desert, this is the kind of place where if God was walking through and his shoe fell off, he'd go, I'll just get another one. I'm not going back, you know. Uh, in the middle of the desert, we had absolutely nothing. My mom would uh, heat up water on a wood stove and she'd take that water and pour it into, remember those green uh, Coleman coolers? And you'd open them, they'd go like that. She'd pour it in there, hang the cooler out of our window and open up the spigot and it would on our heads and that's how we took showers when I was a little kid. Potty trained in an outhouse, we were po. Uh, we dug the outhouse ourselves. It was, uh, we were really, really poor had absolutely nothing, but one thing that we always did, this, this group of us, my, my little family, is we constantly, constantly worshiped. There was always music, always singing. There was always something going on that was giving praise to God. We'd sing those old songs like, um, I've been redeemed, I've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. You know, those old ones are like Father Abraham and a bunch of like nine little kids marching around in a circle. <laughs> I'm in the Lord's army, you know, 
But that was us. That was our identity. And so, you know, once that, that only lasted for just so long. And then we, we moved on to, to Idaho where I did most of my growing up. But we always, as a family, look back on that time as this incredibly, incredibly special time. I mean, we had nothing. But it's one of the most amazing times of all of our lives because we were so close as a family. We were so close to God because we knew who we were and whose we were. And it all centered around who we were worshiping. Yeah, that is cool. There is, uh, there's another thing that can happen when God's people gather together in worship. Not only does it um, help you uh, solidify your identity as a community, like Tom was just talking about, but it also spills over and has a effect or impact on the community, not just in the church, but the people around the church people get impacted as well. And one of the coolest stories about this happening in the early church is in Acts chapter four. I'll give you the cliff notes uh, beginning of this, and then we'll kind of look at the punchline together. In Acts chapter four, Peter and John are uh, out uh, sharing the gospel. They're sharing the good news and testifying about Jesus and telling about what they had seen him do. And in particular, they were teaching about the resurrection of the dead and Jesus. And the Sadducees and the chief priests were not down with that. They were not happy about it. And they had called them in and, and began to debate with them by what authority Peter and John had to teach these things. And it was late in the day. And so they decided, you know, maybe we could discourage them a little if they were in jail overnight. And so they throw him in jail for the night, and the next morning they get out of jail, and there's this banter back and forth that goes on for some time about um, why are you teaching what you're teaching? Why are you saying what you're saying about Jesus? To which Peter and John just keep responding like, like, what else would we talk about is essentially how they would answer. Like, should we believe what you say or believe Jesus, whom we saw and testify to what we saw with our own eyes, Right? And it, this wells up into this kind of a big ordeal. And alongside this same thing, what's going on is there is a crippled man who they had healed who is now like 40 years old. And the people there knew that he was crippled and knew that he had been crippled since birth. And he's standing there amongst them well, physically healed. And so the, the crowd is uh, giant Peter and John fans, Giant Jesus fans. They were like, this stuff they're talking about is real stuff. And so the, the chief priests realized, like, this maybe isn't the best time to try and uh, take this any further. And they really couldn't find anything to do to punish them. And so they basically lectured them, which we all know how well that works, right? Um, it, it says in the word they give them a, a stern talking to to discourage them, and then they finally released them. Well, what they did after that reveals a lot about what they were committed to and what they were passionate about and what mattered to them and what mattered to their community. I want to read it together with us. Let's take a look at it. It'll be up here. It says, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they had heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? 
The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus." And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now here's the thing. They go through this ordeal where they're being accused, like trying to, they're, they're, they're being told, stop talking about Jesus. They're thrown in jail for it. They're challenged about why they have the authority to say what they have been saying. And when they are finally released, they run to their community and they say, you're never going to believe what happened. You're never going to believe what we have just been through. And they tell the story of how God was at work to release them and to set them free to come back and to share with them. And their community responds with worship. They pray together. They sing together. They celebrate what God is doing through the testimony of Peter and John. And when they do that, amazing things happen. The ground shook and the Holy Spirit showed up in a miraculous and amazing way. And I don't wanna take any of that for granted, but I want you to recognize that in addition to that, some other stuff started to happen. The spillover, if you will, of what happens when God's people celebrate what he is doing in their midst and they gather together and they worship, they pray together, they celebrate. When that happens, some really neat stuff starts to happen. I wanna show show you. Let's look at it together. It says this. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought them the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus, Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which meant son of encouragement, he was a Levite, a native of Cyprus. He sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. When when God's people are free to worship, it starts to affect not only them, but the community around them. When God's people, it said that they continued to testify to the resurrection of Jesus. Like they kept telling Jesus stories. And as they did, they worshiped and celebrated. And as a result of this worship and celebration, the solidifying of them as a group of Christ followers, it started to spill out in practical ways to the people around them. That that they didn't think of their stuff as their stuff. They thought of their stuff as a means to an end to help meet the needs of the people in their community as a way to serve people that 
lacked, whether it was food or clothing or resources or supplies, and, and they just practically started to meet the needs, not only of the people in their fellowship, but beyond into the greater community around them. Now, I, I think what happens a lot when people at different times in your life read this passage, I think it's a common thought or daydream to think at some point and read this and to go, man, wouldn't it have been nice to live like that then? Wouldn't it have been cool to be a part of that? Like it feels like this extraordinary time in the history of God's people where there was something special going on that seemed special only at that time. Now here's what I want to tell you. You can be a part of that. You can be a part of a community that celebrates what God is up to, that shares testimonies and Jesus stories and gathers together with your friends and family and worships together and then watch as it spills out and changes the people in the community around you. For a lot of you that have been a part of Real Life on the Palouse for a long time, you already are having stories popping in your head of, oh yeah, that's happening here. I know this story, I know that story, I know this story, and you know what? It is. It is happening here. There are amazing things going on. There are so many cool stories of what God is doing outside the walls of this church as a result of you coming here, sharing, testifying to the goodness of God and worshiping together. A lot of you are familiar with a ministry called Real Needs. It's a ministry that's been a part of Real Life on the Palouse for a lot of years, and it's a really neat ministry. What they do is they find out um, through a process they have of uh, people that have specific needs, real needs. It's a genius title, okay? So for example, uh, a single mom that can't afford a bed and her kids are sleeping on the floor or a family that you know, had a fire or something and they have specific needs or someone that's moving out of a situation where they can't take any of their stuff with them and they're starting over and they, they just have real practical needs. This ministry helps identify what those needs are and couple them with people from our church and our community that have a way to meet that need. And so now a kid that didn't have a bed is sleeping on a bed. And it's a result of people loving God celebrating what he's doing and be a part of, being a part of a bigger community that worships together and it spills out in really cool ways. There's a, another thing going on that some of you maybe uh, have heard some cool stories about over in Pullman that I want to share a little story with you. Um, we found out um, in Pullman and Whitman County that there was a real need, uh, a neat thing to come alongside families who were in the process of trying to put their family back together. Many people are familiar with the CPS or Department of Family and Health Services, whatever the right name for it is. Um, when things go awry and kids are removed from the home for whatever reason, that initiates a process where families, uh, parents, start working through the steps to put their family back together, right? It's a complicated, messy process. 
one of the things we became aware of is that when families are in that process and they get to the point where they're able to start seeing their kids again, they have to have a, a supervised visit. And when a supervised visit happens, that means a trained facilitator is, is stuck doing a really hard job. They're acting on behalf of the best interest of the kids and they're, because it's their job, I'm not saying it because they're doing anything wrong. They're essentially like grading the parents when they visit. They're looking over their shoulder, literally observing what the parents are doing and are they doing the right things towards being able to provide and take care of their children? Well, what we found out in Whitman County is there's anywhere from 50 to 75 kids that are removed from their home at any given time. And that these supervised visits, when parents are doing the hard work of putting their family back together, these supervised visits are taking place in the McDonald's playland. This might be the only time a mom or a dad gets to see their kids in a week or 10 days or a two week period ever in person. They might have a few hours. Sometimes they're even a six hour visit. Imagine how excited you would be to get to do that visit and how frustrated you would be that you had to do it at a McDonald's playland. I don't care how good of a mom or a dad you are, after three hours in the McDonald's playland, CPS will want to take your kids away. <laughs> it is not a recipe for success. So in Pullman, we've rented a duplex, a three-bedroom, three-bathroom duplex. We have, with the help of our folks in Pullman, everybody has stepped up to the plate and furnished it and provided every dishes and, I mean, everything you need to make it a home so that they can come and do these visits in a place that feels like home. And they can focus on restoring their relationships with their kids, not going crazy or being uncomfortable in a difficult situation or a difficult time. That's spillover. That's impact on the community because people in our church are sharing stories in home group about what God's doing in their marriage and what God's doing with their kids. And they're coming to church and they're sharing stories with each other and they're celebrating what God is doing and they're worshiping together. And as we worship together and we become solidified, like galvanized in our identity that we are rescued ones, we are ones whose lives have been put back together by Jesus, it spills out into the community like we want to have that for other people too. God is up to amazing things inside and outside of our church on the Palouse. Don't ever get tired of telling God stories and celebrating and worshiping together because God is a good God. And that's going to move us to something that we get to do every week and celebrate is our time of communion together. So if the servers would go ahead and pass out the elements. If you're new with us at Real Life, when we have communion, we have what we call an open table. And that means that anybody who wants to celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus with us is welcome to take communion with us. So if, uh, as they pass them out, if you would just please hold on to the elements and then we're going to take communion together in just a few minutes. All right. Um, 
these implications that we're going to look at, I just want to share a couple ideas with you about implications. We do these things, these nuggets, these takeaways every week, and um, sometimes it's like they hit you really hard on Sunday morning here at the service time, but you don't know maybe how to apply them outside of this. I want to throw a couple ideas at you. If you're in a me and three accountability group, a Bible study, and it's sort of stale, and you feel like you've talked about a lot of the same things over and over. How are you doing? What are you doing? What's up? You get the same questions, same answers. Bring these implications from the sermon each week and use those to kind of fuel some new conversations in your me and three. They also work awesome for dinnertime conversations. Cut them up, throw them in the middle of the table and ask somebody to pick one. And that's what you talk about at dinner. So there's just a couple ideas of ways to take these things beyond Sunday morning. Yeah, so let's take a look at that first implication. It's this, as, as part of God's community, we are called to worship. We are called to worship. Not just the people with skinny jeans on, and not just the people who can play an instrument, not just the people who can sing. We are called to worship. If you think back to that story in Exodus, at the very outset of it, uh, before Moses ever returns to Egypt to lead the people out, God calls Moses, remember, in a burning bush. Now, what God says there is really interesting. Moses is worried. He says, God, how, how are, how's anybody going to know that you know, like they're supposed to follow me? Or really, how, how am I supposed to know that you're with me? God says, well, I'll give you a sign, and here's what it'll be. You'll know that I'm with you. And the people will know that I am with them because when you leave Egypt, you'll return and worship me on this mountain. So then you look at what happens, right? The people are led out of, out of Egypt. Red Sea's parted. Off they go. Reed Sea, depending. I don't know. Reed Sea. Uh, and then the, uh, the water falls, falls in on the... Uh, Pharaoh's army, chariots, and all that. Very first thing that the people of Israel do, they respond and worship. Miriam sings a song, something like, God has delivered us with his right hand. The, the sea swallowed up Pharaoh and his army. The chariots and the horse drowned, on, you know, so on and so forth. It's this incredible, incredible, incredible uh, poem, really. Generations to come will ask us, what's the song that we sing? And uh, they, they go on to say, we'll remember, we'll remember this day. We are called, called to worship. Yeah, that's good. Let's take a look at that next one. What is keeping you from being free to worship God? What's keeping you from being free to worship God? Now, whether you want to be real vulnerable and transparent and throw that one on the table in a group, maybe, maybe not but I would really challenge you to spend some time with the Lord personally in the next few days and really chew on, is there anything holding me back from being truly free to worship God? Let's look at the next one as well. God's faithful people throughout history have responded to his work with worship. I love this. I love this idea uh, that uh, as we're faithful to God, our response to whatever he's doing, his activity in our lives becomes uh, an attitude of worship. Whether it's a big deal or a little small deal, like you get the USB thing to plug in right on your first try. Respond in worship, especially the USB thing. Um, Come on. 
it's a beautiful thing to pause for a moment and recognize God's activity and turn it into worship for him. Go, Lord, I know this is a small thing or whatever, but I just want to acknowledge, I see you. I see what you're up to and I love it. Thank you for what you're doing in my life. Let's look at this last one. This is a big deal. This is a really big deal. How we worship in here shapes how we love people out there. How we worship in here shapes how we love people out there. You want to change the world for Jesus one person at a time? You want to reach lost friends and family and people in this community that are far from God and don't know him and desperately need the hope of Jesus in their life? Pour your heart out with your family in here. Draw together as a community that worships God together and see what God does on the periphery. See how it spills out around us. Every week we get together and we get to celebrate what God did for us through Christ on the cross. We get to be reminded of the story of Jesus, that he followed through with the Father's plan so that we have a way to have a right relationship with him and forgiveness for our sins. And we, we tell this story with words and with symbolism through these instruments here. And, and as we tell this story, we get to respond with worship. So as we wrap up this morning, let's remember that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it and he gave thanks for it. And he said, as often as we get together, let's eat this in remembrance of him. In the same way, he took the cup and he said, this cup represents the new covenant, which is his blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. Let's drink this in remembrance of him. We just reminded ourselves of what Jesus did for us through his work on the cross. We reminded ourselves of the opportunity we have to have a relationship with a holy God, a good God. Just like the Israelites looking back to that song that they sang on the other side of the sea. This morning as we finish, we get to respond with worship in what God is up to in our community, in our church, and in our own personal lives. So let's, let's do what God's people have done throughout history. Let's respond with worship. We hope you've enjoyed this message from Real Life. If you'd like more information on who we are, what's happening in our church, and how you can get involved, visit us on Facebook and Twitter, and visit our website, liferotp.com. 